Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Established Through Grace. Grace is not a New Testament concept. If you take one scripture where it says Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever, it will verify that grace was there from the beginning of time because Jesus was there in the beginning. And Jesus is the man of grace. From the very beginning, it has always been our Father's heart that the covenant He has with us be established through grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. We see that truth in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It has always been about grace with the Father. We have been established through grace. We see this truth as a shadow before the Old Covenant with a man by the name of Abraham. He lived before the Old Covenant came about. We see the substance of this truth through the covenant that God made with His Son Jesus at the cross on our behalf. So let me ask you a question. Do you prefer the shadow or do you prefer the substance? A Rolls Royce is a very expensive automobile. But did you know that the shadow of a Rolls Royce is absolutely worthless? It doesn't have any value. I'll tell you what the shadow does, though. The shadow can bring hope. But the substance is always much greater than the shadow. If I'm sitting in my living room at home and I hear some footsteps coming down the hallway and I happen to see Valerie's shadow on the wall before I see Valerie, I know Valerie's coming. And usually by the shadow, you can tell who it is, not only the outline and the shape, but by their mannerism. So you can see that the substance is coming. Now how dumb would this be when Valerie enters the room, I jump up and I run over and hug the shadow. <laughs> is that dumb? That would be crazy. And then I'll imagine I've got the shadow and I've got the substance. And as I talk to Valerie, I'm talking to the shadow. She's standing here and I'm talking to her shadow. And when she's talking, I'm listening to her shadow. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense in my heart either. Friends, many believers are still embracing and romancing and dialoguing with the shadows of the old covenant when we have access to the true substance and his name is Jesus Christ. Romancing the shadow is like putting together a puzzle upside down. You know what it does? It takes a long time to put together a puzzle upside down. And I know because I have walked this Christian walk for 22 years, when I try to do things on my own strength, I have found it takes a long time to get something done. In fact, usually it doesn't get done. What would be the point in that? Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines shadow this way. It calls it an imperfect and faint representation. It says a shadow is the opposite of substance. My point is this. Laws and images of the Old Covenant were merely shadows of good things to come. I've come by today to tell you that the substance is in the room because we carried him in here today and his name is Jesus. We can quit embracing and having dialogues with shadows. The substance has come. Shadows can be misinterpreted. When the Lord put that in my heart a night or two ago, he said, son, I want you to think about this. Shadows can be misinterpreted. He said, you can't tell for certain if you see the shadow of a banana on the wall, if it's coming from a real banana or a plastic banana. You can misinterpret the shadow. So often we misinterpret the scriptures because we have not learned how to discern shadows from substance. In the course of doing this, we can totally misrepresent daddy's heart. Daddy's heart is that we would be established with grace, not of works. I want to tell you something. When somebody misrepresents my daddy, I kind of take it personal. Listen, you pick on my kids, I take it personal, right? You pick on my daddy, I take it personal. Because I know my daddy's heart. I'm talking about my father. I know his heart. 
You try to tell me that my daddy will run off and leave me when his word clearly says, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And you want to come with a message that says he might run off on me? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we find these words. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Let me camp here for just a second, okay? Make note that it says the law is only a shadow of good things. The law was only a shadow of Christ. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it says it. What is it? Well, let's stay in context. We're talking about the law. For this reason, the law, and I want you to see these words, can never. It doesn't say it's one in a million, one in a billion, one in a trillion, one in a quadrillion, one in a quintillion. We can just keep on going with numbers. It says it can never. That means not even once. The law can never once by the same sacrifice. I don't care if you repeat these sacrifices over and over, year after year. It can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Am I in the book? Is this plain? Oh, it excites me. We're talking about shadows. We're talking about substance. And it clearly says the law is only a shadow. What is the law? It's the Ten Commandments. It's all the Mosaic system. It's the ceremonial laws. All kinds of different laws. Combined dietary laws. The law can never, never, ever, ever make those perfect that draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. That's really important because what he's saying, if the old system would have worked, God was the one who would have said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's what he's kind of saying in this scripture right here. He said, listen, if it would have worked, we'd have just kept it in place. But it didn't work. And that's why Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world was laid. God didn't say, oh, that didn't work. (laughs) Plan B. No, he knew it wouldn't work. God knows everything. Let's stay in context now. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. So let's stay in context, and let's just jump up nine verses to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. (laughs) When I was looking at those day after day, again after again, it kind of reminded me of my daughter, Sarah, when I say, daughter, I sure do love you. And she says, I know. (laughs) It's kind of the same attitude here. Day after day, I know, day after day, year after year, And then he makes it even more plain. He says, which can never take away sins. First time he said it can never make those perfect. Now he says, let's just really get down to where you can not misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? The law can never, those sacrifices that you were doing, they can never, ever take away sins. Religious duties and sacrifices didn't take away sins then, And it doesn't take away sins now, friends. Jesus didn't die to make the law better. He didn't die to reinforce the law. Jesus died on the cross so that he could fulfill the law so that we could come under the new covenant of grace. Oh, man. And then he continues. He says, but when? Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you what that little conjunction but means. It means to go beyond what has been said. But. See, we can dwell on all these things about performance. We could dwell on religious duties and these sacrifices and sin and all this stuff. But he says, but let's go beyond what's been said. But when this high priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, not year after year, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he, Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I want you to see something. I want you to compare Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, against Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Now, the law can never make perfect those, all right? Now, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, for by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those. It's all in the same context. 
He has made us perfect, and he's done that through one sacrifice. The reason that God cut covenant with the darling of heaven instead of us is because man is a covenant breaker. Jesus is a covenant keeper. I'm going to tell you, I've said this before, but if Adam wouldn't have blown it, then somebody else would have, okay? We couldn't have got this far without somebody blowing it, right? So we want to beat Adam up all the time, believe me. Man, listen, as far as I can see, Adam only blew it one time. Isn't that amazing? I've heard people say, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to really give Adam some of this, man. I'm going to track down Adam. He'll be easy to find. He's the one with no belly button because he wasn't made through a woman. (laughs) Have you ever heard people say this kind of stuff? Oh, he'll be easy to find. I'm going to track him down. I'm going to beat him up for injecting sin into the world. Oh, friends, come on. We've blown it more than Adam's ever blown it, and yet we beat him up, you know. Again, the reason God did not cut covenant with us under the new covenant, he cut it with the darling of heaven, his own son Jesus, is because we would never have been able to keep it. Jesus would keep it. Besides that, did you notice when reading the book of Leviticus, now when's the last time you were in Leviticus. Can you even pronounce that? Leviticus. Leviticus. When reading the book of Leviticus, that when the sin offering was made under the old covenant, now we've already fast forwarded, we've got beyond Abraham there for a second, we're into Moses' period now, that when that sin offering was made under the old covenant, the lifeblood of an innocent animal was shed. It's very important to understand that the lifeblood of an innocent animal was shed. You couldn't bring in a sheep that had one blind eye. You couldn't bring in a sheep that had a tick in his ear. Not sufficient. You couldn't bring in one with spots or wrinkles or flaws. Wouldn't do. You couldn't bring in one that had the mange around its neck. Wouldn't do. It had to be perfect. And you know what? The priest would inspect it to make sure that it was perfect. Or that would not do as a sacrifice. It had to be flawless. And as I was meditating on that for a moment, I believe that thing had to be perfect in its behavior too. I don't believe you could brought one in that was just kind of hopping all over the place, moving all over, a rebellious one, you know what I mean? I don't think they had to bring him in on a rope. I've seen some pictures where it shows them bringing him in on a rope. I believe, you know, just like the Bible says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. I believe all that guy had to do is just say to his sheep, come on, let's go. I don't believe it was rebellious. I remember the story, my daddy told it to us several times when we were young, growing up. He said, son, when I was just a little boy, he said, I hung around with my Uncle Bill. He said, Bill wasn't a big guy, but Bill was the strongest man I ever seen in my life. Oh, Bill was strong, he said. And one day we were cutting through the mountains of Virginia, and he said, we heard this awful noise. Bill said, what is that? He heard a man screaming, thought he'd been hurt or something like that. And he'd hear a whip cracking once in a while. And he said, so they ran through the woods and they came up to a field. And there was a man whipping his donkey. See, he was using that donkey to plow that day. And that donkey decided, I've had enough of this. I'm going to be rebellious. I'm just going to sit down on the job. And that donkey literally was sitting down. And that man was screaming at it, slapping it in the face and hitting it with the whip and sticks. And that donkey would not move. Uncle Bill said, what seems to be the problem? He said, well, this thing just sat down on the job. It won't move. Uncle Bill said, I'll I'll take care of this. My daddy said he watched his Uncle Bill put his arm around that donkey's neck. And he said, when he tightened down on it, he said, you could hear the bones crunching in its neck. And my daddy said, Bill began to drag that animal across the dirt. That's how strong the man was. And eventually, the the animal, he said, was dug in with all fours as he was just sliding him across the dirt. My daddy said, eventually, that donkey just said, he just took one step and then another step. And pretty soon, his back end was up and he was back plowing again. I don't believe you could bring an animal like that before the priest and the priest say, that's okay. I don't believe you could bring one that was old and sick and diseased. It had to be a perfect lamb in attitude and in appearance and in every single way. It had to be perfect because this is the shadow of Christ, that perfect lamb of God. Carry that thought over to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and 7. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we're talking about the cross eventually here, but the type in the shadow has already been in place for a while. And that is, you need to bring a lamb and you need to lay your hands on it. That's exactly what would happen. You bring your lamb in, as my wife preached a while back, you'd lay a hand on the lamb's head and your sins were transferred to the lamb and his innocence was transferred back to you. And then the priest would cut that lamb's throat and let it bleed out. 
and then use it as a sacrifice. You say, man, did they really do this? <laughs> Go read it. It's in the Bible. Leviticus. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 and 7 again. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, my sin was transferred. My iniquity was transferred to him. It was laid on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. There was no rebellion in Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That little lamb had no idea when the man selected it. It just started following his voice, had no idea that was his last day. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Under the new covenant, the blood of the innocent and spotless and sinless Lamb of God was shed, and the eternal benefits of the new covenant became ours, not just through covenant, but they became ours through inheritance. That's really important to understand that. They don't just become yours because there's a covenant. They become ours through inheritance. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we find these words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us so that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Did you notice how the Apostle Paul just referenced all the way back into Genesis and picked out Abraham? Why would he do that? Because he understands that our covenant is like Abraham's covenant. See, Abraham lived before the law, and so he's referencing Abraham. He's saying, let's go back to the very beginning. I want you to see the covenant that God made in the beginning with Abraham. He redeemed us so that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me put this in human terms. Even a human covenant, once it is ratified, cannot be canceled or amended. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Stop there for a second. Today, a contract is ratified by a signature. Back then, they did it different. They did it with blood. They, they did it differently back then. But a covenant, nonetheless, is ratified. If you buy a car and the contract you sign does not call for late charges, then guess what? If you're late, they cannot charge you a late charge legally. I don't care if afterwards they hang a sign on their wall in the payment office that says five days, then a late charge. If it's not in the agreement, if it's not in the covenant, if it's not in the contract, if you will, then they cannot add to it. It's saying right here, it cannot be added to even a human covenant. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, but and to your seed, meaning one who is Christ. And now he says, okay, in case you didn't get that, let me break it down a little bit easier for you. What I mean is this. The law that came 430 years later does not revoke the covenant previously established by God. What he's saying is there was a covenant with Abraham, and then 430 years later, God gave the old covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai. But he's saying, just because I did this right here does not change my promise to Abraham. It doesn't revoke it. He says it does not revoke it so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. Or you can say it like this, if their covenant depends on you, then it no longer depends on Christ. Just another way to say it. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God freely granted it to Abraham through a promise. So let's look at the promise God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. This is really important. Abram does not have this awareness of God like we do. And all of a sudden, God shows up, whatever manifestation that was, and he speaks to him. And the very first words he says to this man is, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So basically what God was saying to Abram is this. He was saying, I want you to leave the things, Abram, that you've gotten familiar with. I want you to leave the things that you really love. I want you to let go of some of the things that you've really gotten used to. In fact, what he was saying, he was saying, 
I want you to leave Haran. I want you to leave this place called Haran. You see, Abram's daddy, Terah, was on his way with his family to Canaan. He wanted to take his, his family into Canaan too, but somehow along the way they got stuck in a place called Haran. And so what he's saying is, I want you to leave all this behind. It's not that just that Canaan had more fertile soil than Haran. It did, but that wasn't the reason. God wasn't just concerned because God could have caused rain and other things to happen in Haran. God was saying, listen, I'm going to take you on a journey, son. I'm going to take you on a journey. And on this journey, you're going to discover, you're going to discover things about the Father that you have never known. You're going to see things that will blow your mind. I'm going to show you things along this journey. It's not just get in a car and let's just drive there. It took a long time to go from Haran to Canaan because he kept making stops and planting altars and doing things all along the journey. I'm going to tell you why these scriptures are meaningful to me. Because in 1995, when I gave my heart to Jesus, he planted me in a church in Beloit, Wisconsin. That same year, he called me to preach, and I said no for two and a half years. And finally, I said yes in 1998, and I became one of the pastors of that church in Beloit, Wisconsin. And I served faithfully in that church for nine years. And in 2004, I heard the word of the Lord say to me, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. It's not exactly the way he said it, but what he said is, I want you to leave your church. I want you to leave your pastor. I want you to leave the people that you've really grown to love. I want you to leave the people that have grown to love you. I want you to leave all this, son, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And we had no idea where we were going at that time, but God was faithful to plant us in Faith Center where we were at for like 10 years. But when God was doing this, he was saying, son, this is the purpose of this journey. This is the purpose of leaving your country. This is the purpose of leaving your people behind. This is the purpose. He said, I want your ministry to be your children. You guys have heard me talk about this. I'm very, very passionate about this because I know how my boys have turned out. When I left that ministry there, I had one boy that was 12 and one boy that was nine, and God said very clearly, they are your ministry until they are grown. And I said, yes, sir. And I'm very, very thankful that I heard the word of the Lord say that to me. You see, what God was doing for me over those next few years is God was teaching me how to be a daddy. You see, God never understand the heart of a daddy until I became a daddy. You can't understand something you've never had any experience with. Let me prove that, okay? I did this to a friend one time, a friend of mine who's an artist. And I said, buddy, I said, you can draw anything, can't you? He said, absolutely. I said, you can paint anything, can't you? He said, absolutely. And he did a phenomenal job. He could write in calligraphy. He could do all that stuff. I said, I want you to pretend that I'm a blind man. I've never seen the light of day. I said, I want you to explain colors to me. He said, I can't do it. I said, you didn't think about it. Think about it for a little bit. He thought about it. He said, I can't do it. You can't explain something that you have had no experience with. And so what God was doing during that time is he was teaching me how to be a daddy so that I could grow up and not just be a daddy to my boys, but I could be a daddy to your boys and I could be a daddy to your girls and I could be a daddy to your brothers and be a daddy to your sisters and I could be a daddy to your mother and to your father and to your cousins and to your aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces and neighbors. I could be a daddy to everybody. I felt the Lord say to me last night, son, I'm going to raise up a voice in Triumphant Grace Ministries. It will be a daddy to the nations with the message of grace. He said, I will make you a great nation. Oh, look at that. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Oh, what a first encounter with God. This is the first thing Abram's hearing. Leave, (laughs) and then here's all the stuff I'm going to do for you, Abram. What do you suppose Abram's response was? We're in chapter 12, verse 2. Let's skip over verse 3 and go to verse 4. Good response, Abram. Very good response. So Abram left. As the Lord had told him, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Haran means mountaineer. It comes from the Hebrew word harar, which means parched. 
When you bring them together, it literally saying the verb and the noun, it literally means a parched mountaineer. And I wanted you to know something. For those 10 years that I put my ministry and sowed it in the ground, there were times I felt like a parched mountaineer. I said, Daddy, I feel like I'm hiking through the world. I feel like I'm coursing my way through the world. But I'm feeling a little thirsty. And that is until the message of grace began to drip in my heart. And I found, oh, I'm no longer thirsty. Jesus, what you said to that woman at the well was true. You said if you drink from this water, if you'll focus on this water. Oh, uh, out of my belly is going to flow rivers of living water. You're never going to be thirsty again. I've exchanged that Kool-Aid religion for Jesus himself, and I've never been thirsty since. Never been thirsty since because he has just filled me with this living water. Now, the time has come for God to institute his covenant with Abram. It's here. He's going to do it through grace and faith. Abram is spoken to by God in chapter 12, and then in chapter 15 we find these words, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar, of Damascus. You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Friends, on the journey from Haran to Canaan, Abram has been doing some thinking, but he's been thinking about the wrong things. Abram has been meditating on the problems and not the promises. The promises of, I am your shield and your very great reward. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. If God would have just told me that, I mean, I wouldn't have had a care in the world. Oh, man, are you kidding me, God? We would do ourselves a great service that would bring rest to our souls and healing to our bodies if we would concentrate on the promises of the word and not the problems of the world. Our bodies would heal up, our minds would heal up if we quit concentrating on the problems of the world and start thinking about the promises of the word. And then the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Abram, I want you to look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So what God did is he took Abram outside and he asked him to do something that was absolutely impossible. You can only see so much with the naked eye. And then you put a magnifying glass in front of that, you'll see a little bit more. Oh, I can pick up a few more stars. And then another magnifying glass, I can see some more stars. And another magnifying glass. And before you run out of magnifying glasses, the night is far spent. You cannot number the stars. So God took him out there and said, Abram, I want you to do something absolutely impossible. And friends, what I heard the Lord say to me was this. We know it can only be by grace. If man can't do it, it there's only one other thing that can, and it's grace. There's only one thing when you're tired of bumping into walls and man hasn't got the answer for you. Grace. Don't wait for man to tell you that. Grace. Grace up front. Grace behind me. I'm walled in with grace. Watch this now. Here's Abram's response. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What did it say? Abram believed the Lord. Abram finally got it. I got it. I believe you. Abram just believed the Lord and it was credited, it was deposited into his count, righteousness. What else did he do? He believed the Lord. What else did the Lord ask him to do? Believe me. Take that truth and let's jump over into the New Testament now in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. What did Abram do? He believed in the Lord. What do we do? We believe in Christ Jesus, the Lord. So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. That word justified literally means declared righteous. It is the same message that God was telling Abram way back there. He said, listen, just believe in me and you're going to be declared righteous. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he's saying the same thing. He's saying, listen, believe in Christ Jesus and you shall be justified or declared righteous. Now, 
One of the most controversial questions within the body of Christ is this. Is the covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis 15 conditional or unconditional? The reason this understanding is important is because our covenant has been patterned after Abraham's. Therefore, that which was true about Abraham's covenant is also true about ours. I believe the answer to whether Abraham's covenant was conditional or unconditional is clear when you observe the manner in which his covenant was ratified. Genesis 15, 9 through 18. The covenant is about to take place. So the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. He thought he needed to help God. God, the vultures are coming. They're going to eat all this meat that I've cut for this sacrifice. So God, let me help you because obviously you don't see this, okay? See that, you know, in that crazy mentality, that's what we do a lot, you know? God, you apparently don't see this here, so I'm going to have to help you. He said, no, you just need to do what I asked you to do. I didn't ask you to drive away any birds, did I? As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. I know there's different stages of sleep. You have like the alpha stage, the the beginning stage of sleep. You have the non-REM stage, which is a deeper sleep. And then you have the REM, which stands for rapid eye movement. And that's where your deep sleep is at. This is where you do your dreaming. You're only in there maybe for an hour, hour and a half total all night long. But that's where you're really getting your rest. I want to tell you something. Abraham is not even in REM. Abraham is in coma. This is a deep sleep. And the Bible says a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And we're going to find out why God put him to sleep. God is the one who caused the sleep to come upon him. While he's sleeping, he tells him what's going to happen to the Israelites. And he tells him what's going to happen to him. But he says this, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Here's the key to our conditional or unconditional covenant. Next scriptures. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Do you see the heifers that have been slain? So this was the practice back then. When you were going to make a covenant with someone, you would slay animals and lay them like a road like that. And then the two of you would walk by each other down that road between those pieces of meat. And that's how a covenant was cut. But make note that Abram is sleeping. Abram is supposed to be up, isn't he? Isn't he supposed to be the one cutting the covenant with God? Friends, I want to tell you something. This imagery that we're seeing here, there with the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch is none other than God himself cutting covenant with his son, Jesus Christ. Which shows you this is a unconditional covenant because Jesus is a covenant keeper. Jesus will never, ever, ever break covenant with his father. Ever! Now, if Abram would have walked down that road with God, Abram could have got off in the flesh because covenants could be broken back then by people. It didn't happen very often, but covenants could be broken back then. So God said, Abram, I want to cut a covenant with you. I want to give you this covenant, son, but I don't need any help with you, okay? I want to cut this covenant with my son. There's the imagery for that. What I want you to see through the balance of this message is this. Through the eyes of our daddy, and through the new covenant that he cut with his son Jesus, he sees his children as pure as the driven snow. There is no residue of sin in our spirits, or Jesus couldn't live there. No residue of sin in our spirits, okay? We have no spots, we wear no wrinkles, 
we hide no blemishes. We are flawless in the eyes of our Father. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Friends, this is more than boy meets girl. This is more than that. Song of Solomon is about Christ and the bride. It's an allegory. It's talking about how Christ pursues his bride and how his bride pursues her lover. And he says to her, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now I want you to see the same scripture from the Orthodox Jewish Bible. I don't usually quote from there, but I found it to be interesting. Thou art all Yahweh, my love. There is no mum in thee. The word Yahweh means beautiful. So what he's saying is, thou art beautiful, my love. There is no mum, and mum, when you look it up in the Hebrew, literally means blemish, spot, defect, and flaw. And he says, I don't see any of those things in you. You're my beloved. When I saw that earlier this week, I said, God, where does this word come up for the first time in the Bible? Remember we talk about the law first mentioned. Where would I find that word Yahweh at for the very first time? Because when it comes up for the first time, it sets the standard, man. It sets the standard. It lets us know, man, this is what I had in mind when I first spoke this word. That word Yahweh comes up in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 11, and Abram is the one who says that word for the first time, and he says it to his wife, Sarah. It says, just before they arrived in Egypt, Abram told, we always say Sarai, her name in the Hebrew is pronounced Sarai. Just before they arrived in Egypt, Abram told Sarai, look, I know that you are very beautiful. You're a beautiful woman, Yahweh. Yahweh. Why is that important to us? Why is that important for us to know that the first time it was used, it was used with Abram telling Sarah that? Because Sarah is the mother of grace and Abram is the father of faith. Our opening scripture was Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 where it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. The apostle Paul is pointing us all the way back to Abram and Sarah and saying, listen, for by grace, through a covenant like that right there, you have been saved by grace through faith faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Sarah and Abraham were the shadows of the true substance. Christ in us now is the hope of glory. We are a glorious bride that is happily married to the Lord Jesus, the one that nourishes and cherishes and loves us with an everlasting love. Jesus loves you and me just as much as he loves himself. That's an amazing thought. And Jesus loves you and me in the same exact manner as he loves the Father. I want to tell you something. Apart from the revelation of grace, a man will embrace shadows and not substance. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Did you make note as to why Christ gave himself for the church. Christ loved the church. That's why he gave himself for the church. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now watch what it says, that he, not you, that he, that he, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It was his love for the church that nailed him to the cross. It's an amazing and almost scandalous truth that the Father sees us without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. There's only one explanation I can think of for that, and that's because you and I have been established. We have been put together. We have been formed through grace. Jesus didn't wait until the church got its act together or cleaned itself up before he gave his life for it. No, <laughs> not at all. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Now watch this. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet 
sinners. Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood or being declared righteous by his blood is what it's saying. We shall be saved from wrath through him. I work in an office environment and this past week somebody brought up tipping waitresses and waiters. And I heard all kinds of different responses and I'm just listening. And I could tell they were waiting for me it was like it was my turn and I just finally, I, I should have minded my own business. I really should have. I should have just minded, just stayed out of it. But I said over the cubes, I said, you know, I leave a tip for my waiter regardless of the service I get from them. One guy came around from the other side like he couldn't believe I just said. He, he was offended I just said that. He was offended. He took offense for that. Like it's my money, right? He said, well, I don't. He said, I don't mind tipping. If I get good service, I'll tip. But if I get bad service, I will not tip. And I said, friend, let me tell you something. I tip regardless of the performance of the waiter or the waitress. And I'm going to tell you why I give. I said, I give because my daddy has made me a giver. I don't give based upon performance. And you see, this is the heart of the father. The father didn't say, hey, I'll wait till you get all cleaned up. I'll wait till you're no longer a sinner. I'll wait till you're more perfected. Then, then. No, Jesus said, no, it's not just about me paying a tip or leaving a tip. Father, I'm willing to pay the entire price for these people. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were given God bad service, crummy service, Jesus said, Daddy, I'm into payment in full. I was at the dry cleaners about three weeks ago. And I happened to engage the owner in conversation. I have a tendency to do this. I don't know why, but we began talking about chemicals. Now, we think when we hear the expression dry cleaning that it doesn't go into a solution. We think it's all a dry method. That's not the way it works. It goes into a liquid. It's a toxin that it goes into. In fact, the chemical that's most commonly used in dry cleaning is called perchloroethylene. They call it PERC for short. It's a major toxin. 99.99% of that toxin is recovered. It cannot be flushed down the drain. It is an extreme toxin. It's, it's worse than gasoline going down your drain. So there's this expensive process to recover it. They can't release it in the air. It's too toxic. But yet that's what our clothes are cleaned with. And so as we were talking about that, the man that owns the dry cleaner said to me, he said, you know, there's an old saying in my business, he says, and he says it's this. He said, the solution to pollution is dilution. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I looked that up. That phrase was borrowed from a sign that hung on the walls at the United States Environmental Protection Agency in the 1970s. It said, the solution to pollution is dilution. In other words, what it was saying was this. If you keep a dose of poison low enough, then there will be no toxic reaction. And for the most part, that is true. Unfortunately, though, that is one of the most common mindsets of the unsaved. I'm a good person, and my good outweighs my bad deeds. What a person is actually saying there, because the pollution is sin, what they're actually saying is the solution to my pollution is dilution. If I just do more good than I do bad, then I'll be okay with God. Friends, I want to tell you something. Listen to me carefully. Jesus did not come to dilute our sins. Jesus came to take away our sins, and he did this by establishing our hearts in grace. John chapter 1, verse 29. These are the words from John the Baptist himself when he saw Jesus coming. The next day John saw Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice he said, who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say who dilutes the sin of the world. He said he takes away the sin of the world. 99% of my sins were not taken away. All of my sins were removed at the cross. No residue remains. That is so freeing right there. When you realize that when God looks at you, just like he told the prophet Samuel, he said, I look upon the heart. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but I look upon the heart. I cut through the flesh. I cut through your deeds. I cut through all that junk. I look upon your heart, and I don't see a residue of sin inside of you. And it just frees you up to live for Christ, not to run out and go, well, if he doesn't see it, let's go do it. No, no, it frees you up to really live for Christ. 
Oh man, no residue remains. Psalm chapter 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. That word love is chesed. It is the grace of God in Hebrew. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his grace for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us taken them away, removed them, not diluted them, okay? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 through 26. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Remember that? The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. I want you to let these words fall to the sticky side of your heart this morning. He came to do away with sin. God never looks at you and says, oh man, I... I can't look at you, man. I'm seeing sin in your life. No, he did away with it in our spirit. The internal man, the guy he looks at day and night, the one he says, you look like my son. You look just like my boy. Oh, thank you, Daddy. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established through grace. What is he saying in that scripture? He's saying men are going to come along and they're going to say things to you that will try to undo what I've already told you and what I've already showed you that you're right in my eyes. I love you with an everlasting love. I'll never leave you or forsake you. People are going to come along and they're going to try to say something contrary to that. Yeah, but Brother Mark, the Bible says, you know, they'll do that kind of stuff. You don't love people like that, man. Love them. As long as they're preaching about Jesus, just keep, come on, brother, amen you, man. He says, it's a good thing that the heart be established through grace. Would you like to see the scripture leading up to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9? It's Hebrews chapter 13, believe it or not, verse 8. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what it's saying, it's just saying, listen, our hearts get established through grace, but just before that, he said, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was saying, listen, what I did for Abraham, I'm going to do for you. That covenant I cut with him, I've got for you. The new covenant in the New Testament is not mentioned until the Last Supper. And Jesus doesn't ratify the new covenant with his disciples at the dinner. He simply announces that he will be making a new covenant. In other words, he doesn't say, man, let's cut a covenant right here. Bring me a lamb. Let's shed some blood. Uh-uh. There is no covenant blood shedding at that Last Supper with Jesus. During the covenant, that God made to Abram, the animals' bodies were torn and their blood was shed. Jesus is already prophesying, uh, this is going to happen again, boys, but it's going to happen to me and it's going to happen on the cross. Abraham is merely a type and shadow of our own Lord Jesus whose body would be torn and his blood shed. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, there was no bodies broken and there was no blood shed at the meal. Instead, the communion was served. You see, the bread represented the Lord's body and the juice represented the Lord's blood. This ceremony was to implant in the disciples' hearts that the new covenant is an internal covenant, not an external covenant. It's an eternal covenant, not a temporal covenant. It's an unconditional covenant, not a conditional covenant. It's by the blood of Jesus and not by the blood of bulls and goats. And it's once for all and there'll be no more annual sacrifices. Romans chapter 11, verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Friends, we're not talking about heaven. We're talking about now. I shall take away their sins. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood. How long does the covenant last? An everlasting covenant. Matthew chapter 26 through 28, my final scriptures. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Man, powerful. 
my closing thoughts. Listen to what I'm about to say here. Many of you have watched the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia. There were three of them, actually. This series of movies is based upon the writings of the late and great man, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. I believe in all there were seven or eight of them. Three of them have been made into movies, and so there's still some more time to go here. But they're, they're powerful, powerful, powerful movies that showcase the lion from the tribe of Judah. In the movie, the youngest of the siblings is a little girl by the name of Lucy. In the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, chapter 10, showcases the love of an innocent girl and the lion from the tribe of Judah. His name is Aslan. Lucy sees Aslan from a distance. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan! Aslan! Dear Aslan! sobbed Lucy. At last! The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. It's a wonderful scene. Go watch it. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Friends, so it is with the essence of grace. The more one grows, grace becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Friends, we no longer romance the shadow. We romance the substance his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one that has established us through grace. Father, I want to thank you for this wonderful, majestic truth. How you are so awesome, Daddy, just to take the word and thread it all throughout the Bible. That we can so appreciate the Old Testament and even the Old Covenant where we've come from. So that it can be a springboard into our lives to say, Daddy, we have something that just above and beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. Daddy, I'm thankful as this word just dripped into our hearts this morning that it changes us drip by drip, Daddy. We will not leave the same. Father, I want to thank you for this wonderful, majestic truth that as we grow in grace, we find in a world and we discover a world that grace is just super abounding. Father, thank you for this wonderful truth. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.